0: This podcast is a ministry of Trinity Baptist Church in Jonesboro, Tennessee. Trinity Baptist Church exists to exalt God in worship, to equip disciples, and to evangelize the lost. For more information about our church, just visit our website at trinity3e.org. I want to encourage you, if you would, to take your copy of God's Word and please open it to the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 through 3 will be our text this morning. Beginning this morning and over the next four Sundays, uh, we're going to be examining a Christmas wish list, not the wish list we normally think of. In fact, as I get a little bit older, I reflect on more and look back with a bit of nostalgia. To me, growing up, the sign that Christmas was not far away actually occurred in October, With the arrival of these two things, the Christmas wish book from Sears, actually on the screen on the right side is the 1975 wish book on the left, 1977. These usually came in October, and I couldn't wait to get to them because I would get a red marker and then begin looking through, marking all the toys that I hoped I would get that Christmas. And it's amazing that, you know the old saying, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Amazon, the online behemoth, actually publishes a hard line, a hard copy paper catalog that they mail out. In fact, I I had a little bit of satisfaction watching my grandson pick up the Amazon catalog with his red pen, circling pages uh, as he went through the book. But behind the gifts behind the stuff that we want. Recognize there's something deeper for which we are longing. I think as we get older, we realize that the most important things in life, or I hope we realize that the most important things are not stuff. It's relationships. It's things like peace, joy, joy, Love and hope that are the most important. Those are the things that we really want because those are the virtues that are extolled during the Christmas season. Christmas is associated, and rightly so, with the songs that we sing, the carols that we grow up with. So, hope, for example. Think of the words of the carol, Oh Holy Night. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Hope, peace. We'll sing this season of the message the angels brought of peace on earth and goodwill toward men. Of course, joy becomes predominant. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. We sing words written by Isaac Watts in 1719 that still resonate today because we long for joy. And of course, love. Chorus, or one of the verses of Silent Night says, Son of God loves pure light. Each of these virtues are what we really long for. Now, the tragedy is that often we think there are things that can supply these, but we realize that we need something more substantive, something deeper in which to anchor and to give us these virtues. So this month, we're going to be taking a look at each of these virtues, beginning this morning with hope. Isaiah chapter 60, verses one through three speaks a word of hope to a nation, a people, Specifically, the people of God. God's own people that were now struggling with despair. Follow with me as I read. Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you and His glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light. And kings to the brightness of your rising. Hope is defined, and this is simply one definition. Hope is an optimistic state of mind that is based on an expectation of positive outcomes. With respect to events and circumstances in one's life or the world at large. Optimistic state of mind based on an expectation that things will work out. Now, even though this definition has the word optimistic in it, hope is more than just optimism. Philosopher Terry Eagleton says that there is indeed a difference between hope and an optimistic outlook. Although they may share some of the same qualities, he argues that optimism is more of a disposition, an outlook. In fact, he writes always look on the bright side of life, has about as much rational force as always part your hair in the middle. Hope is different. He says hope is anchored and supported by reasons. Whereas optimism may be an outlook, a disposition one has where there's no reason to be optimistic. Hope is anchored in something supported by something optimism may have no foundation whereas hope is built upon something so it begs the question then what is the basis for your hope for many of us our basis for hope is just simply well i'm going to figure out a way to get through it believe in yourself you can muster up the willpower the ingenuity Many of us grew up on the old children's tale of the little engine that could, that had to get the toys over the mountain and he was faced with what was an insurmountable hill. And you remember, what did the little engine say as he came and started going up the mountain and it started getting harder? What did he say? I think I can, I think I can. You got to do it in the rhythm, the rhythm of a train. I think I can, I think I can, I know I can, I know I can. And the little engine gets over the hill. Well, here's a dose of pessimistic reality. If that little engine did not have enough horsepower to get over the hill, it weren't going to make it. If it required 200 horsepower to get over it and it had 100 horsepower, sorry kids. Now I know I sound like the Grinch in pointing that out. But that's what happens when we rely on ourselves. Because every one of us will find ourselves with circumstances that we don't have the capacity to face. We will face troubles in which we wonder how in the world can we get through this. One of the carols that's not as familiar as some that we sing regularly is the carol "I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day." It was written by William, I'm sorry, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow in 1863. Longfellow wrote this out of a period of profound grief. In 1861, his wife's dress caught on fire. He tried to extinguish it first with a blanket, but that was to no avail. So in the end, he literally threw his body upon his wife to extinguish the flame. And while he was successful in putting out the fire, he was not successful in saving her life. She died the next day. And not only was Wadsworth Longfellow scarred, Emotionally from that, he carried scars on his face the rest of his life. In fact, that's why he wore a thick beard. Two years later, his oldest son, Charlie, joined the, civil, joined the Union Army in the Civil War. Shortly after joining the Union forces, he was stricken with typhoid fever. And barely surviving that, he was shot in battle. And on December 1st of 1863, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow received a telegram stating that his son had been wounded and barely missed being paralyzed. On Friday, december twenty fifth, of eighteen sixty three, Longfellow was a fifty seven year old widowed father of six children, the oldest of which had been shot and nearly paralyzed. He sat down and he wrote a poem a poem that was seeking to capture the the pain that he felt and the distance between what he believed as a follower of Christ and the way the world was. And Longfellow wrote these words, And in despair I bowed my head, There is no peace on earth, I said, For hate is strong and mocks the song Of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep, God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. You see, Longfellow encountered something that he could not overcome. And so he recognized his only hope was in seeking the Lord. The nation and the city of Jerusalem was in a similar state. The people of God had bowed their heads because they saw no reason for hope. They felt abandoned by God and the truth is they had no one to blame but themselves because they had rejected God. They had stubbornly shook their fist in the face of God and said, we'll do what we want to do. And God said, okay, your will be done. They reaped what they had sown. They had turned their backs on God. and They were soon defeated by the Babylonians. In the midst of this defeat, hope was a scarce commodity. Despair was rampant. And that's when the prophet Isaiah showed up with a surprising message. You know, often we have this image of the prophets as doomsayers, those who show up and point their fingers and say, get right with God. Isaiah doesn't do that. Look at the message and he begins preaching. Arise, shine, your light has come. There is hope arise shine that we see there in verse one are the words of get up we may repeat them in some form every morning if you wake up your your child or your spouse and say rise shine and they say get out of the room here it is God's saying arise shine time to get up time to move now understand he's talking about something deeper here than just waking up physically Tony Campolo recounts that when he was a graduate student, he took a course in Chinese philosophy. He had a conversation one day with a Buddhist monk that was teaching the course. The Buddhist monk looked at him and he said, as a Christian, you teach your children to pray all wrong. You teach them to pray, if I should die before I wake, it would be better if you taught them to pray, if I should wake before I die. The monk was pointing out that no one seemed to be totally alive. That even people who profess to follow Jesus seem to be walking around in some zombified state. Not really enjoying life. Not really living with the peace that Christ promises. So this command comes to those who are sleeping spiritually. They're in a state of despair. And he says now is the time to rise up. To those who have been wounded by life, now is the time of healing. Get up. To those who are mourning, now is the time of hope, arise. And he adds to it the command shine. Not just get up and go through the motions, but arise and illuminate the world around you. Now, left with this command, if we did not read any further, we would find ourselves back at the problem of self reliance. How can I shine? (laughs) Life has overwhelmed me. How can I illuminate the world when I barely have light in my own spirit? I want you to understand that this command to rise and shine are transformative because of the next phrase. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For your light has come. Something outside of you has arrived that is going to illuminate you. The solution to our problems is not to look deeper within ourselves, but to look higher up at God. Understand that in the Scripture, light is a symbol of goodness and blessing. It's a symbol of salvation because light rescues us from the darkness. If this room were to be totally dark, and you were to light one small candle, while it might not illuminate the entire room, the darkness could not extinguish that small light. And understand that the light here is equated with the glory of God. What is the light that has come? The glory of the Lord has risen upon you as if the sun is rising. The glory of God has come. Now, the Hebrew word for glory is a wonderful word, kebab. Not shish kebab, but kebab. It means weightiness. Weightiness. In the physical world, it refers to how much something weighs. So if someone dares suggest you may be a bit overweight, tell them, no, I'm just full of glory. And Hebraically, you would be right. But the glory of God is much more than that. The glory of God is understood to be His majesty, His splendor. But it's even much more than that. The glory of God is more than just a manifestation of God's power and His holiness It is his character that goes far beyond what we could ever imagine. In Exodus chapter 34, when Moses is on Mount Sinai, he makes a request of God. God, show me your glory. Now we would expect at that moment for there to be this radiant light that would would cover the entire mountain. But no. What covers the entire mountain as God's glory passes by is God's mercy. His patience, His steadfast love, His faithfulness. That's the supreme glory of God. That's what God says. My ways are not your ways. Why? His grace is far above us. Now, the supreme manifestation of God's glory is Jesus. We see this in John chapter 1. The Word became flesh. Now, the Word is Jesus. Okay? So, Jesus becomes flesh. He dwells among us. He tabernacles among us. We have seen his glory. Now remember, John is writing as one who physically saw Jesus. And his glory is the glory as of the only son from the father. Now the next phrase, there where it says full of grace and truth, that is not describing father. It's describing glory. His glory is full of grace and truth. So as Jesus walks the earth and he reveals who God is, he reveals the grace and the truth of God. You see, Jesus is where the symbol of light and the glory of God become reality. Isaiah was building upon this. Earlier, Chris read a passage from Isaiah chapter 42. In Isaiah 42, we are introduced to a character known as the suffering Servant. The suffering servant is unique. The best known Isaiah Asianic prophecy about the suffering servant is found in Isaiah 53. This servant brings redemption, but how? By suffering. It's almost an oxymoron. He delivers by being killed. But Isaiah 42. God begins speaking to the servant and he says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, a light for the peoples. Now in John 1, 4, we are told that Jesus was life and his life was what? The light of men. So understand, for example, in John 8, 12, when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he is saying, I am the suffering servant who has come. I am the light of whom God spoke to Isaiah who would come. I am the morning that has dawned. I am the sun that has risen. And it reminds us that there is hope even in the darkest of places because the glory of God in Christ has dawned. The late Senator John McCain, who passed away in 2018, was asked during the presidential campaign of 2008 to share his personal journey of faith. And in that story, John McCain told about an instance in his life when he was a captive at the Hanoi Hilton. Now those of you who are familiar with that era of history know that this was not a hotel. It was a horrible prison located in Hanoi, Vietnam. McCain said that when he was a prisoner there, his captors would tie his arms behind his back, loop the rope around his neck and ankle so that his head was pulled down between his knees. And he would often be left in that position overnight. He said one night a guard came into his cell. The guard put his finger to his mouth to signify, be quiet, don't say anything. That guard loosened his ropes to relieve the pain. The next morning, just before that guard went off shift, he came back in and tightened up the ropes again, never saying a word. A month later, McCain said it was Christmas Day. He was standing in the dirt courtyard when he saw the same guard approaching him. The guard walked up and stood silently next to John McCain. He didn't look at him, he didn't smile. But then he simply looked down, and with his sandaled foot, he drew a cross in the dirt. And he stood wordlessly looking at the cross. And McCain said, I remember that the true light of Christmas had come, and that Jesus was with us even in the darkness of a Vietnamese prison. The darkness can never extinguish the light. And the world needs that light. You see, in verses 2 through 3, we are given a, a because, a describing verse. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. Remember, if light is the blessing, the favor, and the salvation of God, darkness becomes a metaphor for despair, sin, judgment, and shame. This darkness covers the earth, this thick darkness, this unrelenting darkness upon all the peoples. That is our our common state. It's almost like a cloud of volcanic ash has covered the earth and the light is being put out. Then he reminds us that our purpose is to shine the light. The Lord will arise upon you. Now remember, we are not generating the light. It's the Lord shining through us. His glory is going to be seen upon you. Who is seeing it? The people's in darkness. The nations shall come to your light. If, If my premise is correct, and I believe it is, that what we really hunger for is hope, peace, love, and joy. The world is hungering for those things. And when they are on display in the world through God's people, the world around us is going to be attracted to that. You see, we are to show the kindness, goodness, and faithfulness of God. That's how we display His glory. And this is a light for the nations. That's why we unashamedly promote the Lottie Moon offering for international missions. The world is in darkness and needs the light. And church, just as it was said of the people of Israel, they exist to show the light to the nations. So do we it's not just about what we do in the world around us. It's about what we do in our neighborhoods. December of 2021, the Washington Post carried an article of something amazing that happened in a neighborhood in Baltimore. It actually started in November with a single string of Christmas lights on a Baltimore County street. Kim Morton was at home watching a movie with her daughter. She got a text message from her neighbor who lives directly across the street, and he told her to peek outside. Her neighbor, Matt Riggs, had hung a string of white Christmas lights stretching from his house over the top of the road to her house. And he had left a tin of homemade cookies on her doorstep. And he told her that the lights were meant to reinforce that they were always connected. Matt Riggs said, I reached out to Kim because she needed to know that she was loved. She'd been dealing with depression and anxiety. She was grieving the loss of a loved one and struggling with work-related stress that had led to panic attacks. So Matt Riggs decided that a bit of brightness was in order, but he did not expect what would happen next. It sparked a neighborhood-wide movement. In the days that followed, Matt Riggs' light-hanging gesture Neighbor after neighbor followed suit and began stretching lights from one house to the next to show that they were connected. Leib Comissio, who lives on the other end of the block, saw what Riggs had done, and so she said to her neighbor, Let's do it too. And before we knew it, we were cleaning out Home Depot of all the lights. Little by little, the whole neighborhood started doing it. And those lights became a physical sign of connection and love. Church, we are the light of the world. And that light is hope. It is too easy for us to sit back and bemoan the state of the world and wring our hands as if there is no hope. We of all people should be the ones to to acknowledge, yeah, things look bad. But we serve the God who conquered death. Fear not. I want to ask you if you would to bow your heads with me, if you will. All of us, at one time or another, we will experience those moments of darkness and despair. We're not immune from that. That's where we need to be reminded that the light has come. If I could be so bold, I would say to those of you who are struggling, You are loved. The momentary pain you are facing is not eternal. There is hope. And I would say to those that are in a place right now where it's a smooth period in life. The Lord may be laying someone on your heart to reach out to. Someone that needs to be reminded of the hope. You may not need to do just a grand gesture. It may be something as simple as a text message that says, I was thinking of you today. You are loved. Let's show the love of Jesus, the hope of Jesus to one another. Father, thank you for the hope you give us. The hope founded on the reality of the gospel. For it is in your name that we pray. Amen.